Good morning. It's really fun to be with you guys. One of the, uh, one of the things that really stinks about being a pastor is that you never get to go to your friends' churches. And uh, so it really is a pleasure to be able to worship here, uh, to feel more connected to the Garcias. Ronnie told you we're friends. We met in seminary. Uh, We have maintained a friendship. Our whole family has. Uh, Joy and Amanda have been close friends for a long time. We took our, our church actually brought a group to Puerto Rico uh, to be with the Garcias a couple of summers ago. My daughter stayed with them for a month. My daughter and their daughters are pen pals now, so it's really fun to just have those deep connections. And interestingly, actually, we have another connection to Denver Prez. Uh, In 2008, I think it was, the summer of 2008, between my second and third year in seminary, Uh, A lot of seminary students will do internships with churches, and I ended up doing an internship with this little fledgling church plant in Denver called Denver Prez. And we rented a house in Park Hill, and we spent the whole summer here learning and digging in and, you know, worshiping in the pastor's living room. And it was such a wonderful encouragement to me. I'm now a church planter. And so, so much of what I learned that summer here has carried over into what I'm doing in New Braunfels, Texas. So um, hopefully there's maybe a little tiny piece of me in this church, and there's a lot of you even in our church. So it is wonderful to be together with you this morning. We are going to look at a passage of God's Word in Titus chapter 1. Titus is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his ministry partner, Titus, for their church plant in Crete. So it's a great introduction, I think, to what it means to be a healthy church. What does a healthy, gospel-centered church look like? Whether that church is brand new or four-year-old like our church is, or 15 years old or 300 years old, what does it look like to be a healthy church? So as I read from God's Word, uh, as we read together from God's Word, let me invite you to stand. Uh, Titus chapter 1 I'll read one through four. It's in your worship bulletin. You can follow along there. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have now been entrusted by the command of God our Savior." To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. This is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him and love him in return. You can be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful to come under your word today. I ask that you would take anything that is getting in the way of having it sink into our hearts, whether they are blind eyes or stopped up ears, or hearts that are hardened, or minds that are wandering. Lord, whether we are coming excited today or coming tired, whether we're coming hurting or coming rejoicing, we ask that you would speak to us through your word today that we might know you more deeply, that we might love you more fully, that we might see Jesus today and might proclaim him in all that we do. We pray in his name, amen. Well, I'm gonna, um, 
I'm gonna stay kind of on this part of the stage. I've been told this is where the light is. So you guys over there, it's not that I don't like you, okay? I'm just not gonna wander too far because of the light. Ronnie told you uh, we live in a, in a small Texas town called New Braunfels, Texas. It's an old German town. It's growing like a weed. It is the second fastest growing city in the country the last two years running. But before New Braunfels, we lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I worked at uh, a church that was a really pretty old church, almost 200 years old. And if you've ever been around old churches, uh, you know old churches collect old things, and old churches have these just rooms, these closets just filled with trinkets old things that nobody either knows what to do with, or they have some sort of sentimental value, or maybe they have some sort of real monetary value. And tucked away in the closet in this old church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, was this vase, this really beautiful blue and white vase, kind of hand-painted, very nice. And uh, a pastor friend of mine that was there, one of the pastors on staff, he tells me the story of, of the woman who kind of was in charge of all of the old things. If there's an old church with old things, there's always, you know, an old woman who's kind of in charge of all the old things. And uh, he tells a story that she took him aside one day, and in my head, it's kind of like she's on her deathbed. She probably wasn't. But she grabbed him and she said, listen, all of the things in that closet are worthless, but that vase, take care of that vase and never let it go. It's old. It's Chinese. It's from the insert whatever in the blank dynasty and it's worth tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, of course, my friend took her word for it. He took it into his office. He put it in the back of one of these cabinets, locked the cabinet. He's kept it in there for years, not really knowing what to do with this vase and what the real value of it was, because what do you do with an old vase? Well, it just so happens, actually, that one day, uh, Antiques Roadshow came through Baton Rouge. You know that show? It's on PBS where, uh, you know, they set up shop and people come in and they're like, hey, I bought this painting at a garage sale. And the guy goes, well, look, see this little inscription that says Rembrandt on it, right? You're a millionaire. Yay. It's super exciting. So uh, they decided this is perfect. We'll take the vase and we'll take it over to the Antiques Roadshow and we'll stand in line and we'll have them tell us exactly what it's like. And, you know, hearts are starting to flutter a little bit with the excitement of this vase. And they stand in line, and they're waiting there for hours, and they finally get up, you know, to the, to the guy who's the, the, the antique Chinese vase antiquities, you know, uh, guy. He's, he's the best in the world at, at it or whatever, right? And he says, oh, this is beautiful. And he takes it, and he says, well, I can tell you one thing about it. It is Chinese, and you know that because if you turn it over here, you can see the, the sticker that says made in China. And it wasn't quite that bad. But basically, it was worth almost nothing maybe a hundred bucks. It looked really nice, but no real lasting value. Now, I tell you that story to tell you that the same thing actually can happen in the church. The church globally and the church locally in each individual body can look really good sometimes. And we can have our worship all right, and we can have our theology all right, and a lot of people can come, and, and folks can think well of us, but if that church is not centered exclusively on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and by that I mean that Jesus came to do something for us that we could never do on our own, if that church is not based on the gospel and saturated with that message, if it is not centered on the gospel, then guess what? It's just a really pretty but very little value church. So here's the question we're really going to wrestle with this morning. 
is what does it look like when a church is the real thing? What does it look like for a church to be a healthy church, to be a gospel-centered church? What are the marks of that kind of church? And I think Paul actually gives us in these four little verses, just, they're just packed with good news about what a healthy church looks like. And we're going to see four things today, I think, that are marks of a healthy church. The first is there is a gospel-centered attitude in the church. The second is a gospel-centered purpose of the church. And then there's a gospel-centered foundation in the church. And then finally, we'll look at a gospel-centered identity. Okay, so if you like to write things down, you can write those, first, those four things down. An attitude, a purpose, a foundation, and an identity. What do I mean by attitude? Well, look at the way that Paul starts this whole letter. He says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, that may sound strange. This is a letter from one friend to another friend. Why is he signing his name at the beginning? We normally sign our names at the end, don't we? But in the Greek world in the first century, they did, did it just the opposite way. They would introduce themselves first. And oftentimes, the way that you introduced yourself is really important because it said something about who you were. You could kind of give all of your qualifications. You could give your CV to everybody right there at the beginning. Here's my resume. I'm writing you this letter just so you know how important I am. But what's the first word from Paul's pen when he's writing this letter? It's the word servant. Isn't that amazing? That's the way that Paul identifies himself and identifies his attitude even in writing is that he is a servant of God. Now that title actually has been used multiple times uh, in the Bible. Uh, Abraham was called a servant of God. Moses was called a servant of God. Joshua, after Moses, was called the servant of God. David was called the servant of God. So maybe Paul is just kind of claiming to be in this line, this heritage of great men and using that title. But I don't think that's actually what's happening. Because that word, servant, in Greek, it's doulos, and it is actually a really meaningful word in the New Testament. In the New Testament, in the, Greek, in the Greek, Greco-Roman kind of world, uh, there was a class of slaves or servants. That's what the word means. It means either slave, you may have that translation in your Bible, or elsewhere in the Bible, slave and servant are transla translations of the same Greek word. And it was somebody who actually belonged to a master. Now, there were some differences in the way that we understand slavery, particularly 19th century slavery, uh, in the United States and in Europe, and in the way that the slavery worked in the first century in the Greco-Roman world. For instance, slaves, uh, servants could have, they could hold office, uh, they could own property, they could sometimes become very wealthy. Uh, they would oftentimes, people would sell themselves into slavery because it was a pretty good career move. But nonetheless, there was one thing that they definitely held in common, which was you were owned by another person. You belonged to that person. If you were a slave, a bondservant, a servant, you belonged to your master. And there's a lot said actually in the New Testament about what it means to belong to a master. There's a very key passage actually in Romans 6. Let me see if I can read it for us. Listen to the way that Paul, same guy here, talks about who he was a slave to and who he is a slave to now. Listen here, Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are commended, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You hear that? Paul says, 
I was once a slave of sin. In a sense, I was bound. I could not get free on my own. I was a slave to sin. I belonged to sin. I was identified with it completely. But when Jesus set me free, he didn't set me free just to go find whatever I wanted. He didn't set me free to just kind of wander and figure things out. He actually set me free to belong to another master. But this time, a good and true and just and kind and loving master. Christians have been set free from the bondage to that old, terrible, horrific slave master, sin, death, Satan, even our own selves, and we've been set free to belong to another. Jesus, of course, also talks about what it means to be a servant. He tells his disciples that those who would wish to be great would have to first become servants, that the way actually to greatness is to serve, the first being last and the last being first. So here's this wonderful kind of calculus of the gospel here, is that those who were once slaves to sin have been saved in order to become servants of their Savior and servants of one another. Let me say that again. Those who were once slaves to sin have been radically saved and have become servants now of their Savior and now servants of their brothers and sisters and neighbors, servants of one another as well. So the attitude, and here's our first mark of a healthy church, the attitude of a healthy church is a church who understands themselves to be servants, to belong to God and to serve the people around them. Let me just ask you to think for a second. Where are you seeing that in this church? I know oftentimes when preachers ask you to kind of take a second and reflect, it's to, it's to look at all the terrible things you're doing. I don't want you to do that right now, actually. I want you to take a second and take inventory of all the beautiful service that's happening here. I, mean, I got here just before the service started, probably later than I should have, but still saw so many people getting ready, setting things up, preparing to serve one another. Where are you seeing folks who are teaching your children about Jesus? Where are you seeing people who are hosting others in their home for dinner or bringing a meal to someone who's just had a baby or who's sick? Where are you seeing friends walk closely alongside someone who's struggling with an addiction or who's mourning the death of a friend or a parent or a child? Where are you seeing people come alongside each other and sacrificially love and serve one another? Take note of those things and be encouraged and be challenged because that is the mark of a healthy church is an attitude of service. Now let's move to the second mark now. Second mark of a healthy church is actually a gospel-centered, not just attitude, but a gospel-centered purpose. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, in Titus, we see here, as Paul finishes out just this first verse, he tells us what his purpose is for writing. Listen again. I'll read the, first, the whole of, of verse 1 again. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and here's the purpose, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth 
which accords with godliness. Here are three things. Faith, knowledge, godly action. And they've all got to go together. I love that Paul puts these all together because they are inextricably tied together in the Bible. Faith and knowledge and action should never be pulled apart from one another because once you have one that is above the other, you can really lead to some terrible stuff. When my wife and I were, were first married, this was maybe, I don't know, two or three years we were married, and uh, I like to dabble in cooking a little bit. She does most of the cooking because she is a much better cook than I do. But every now and then, I like to kind of think, hey, I could do something, you know, I could cook for us. So it was maybe, maybe it was our anniversary, it was some sort of special time, and I thought, I'll cook us a meal, and I'll cook soup. And, and I've always loved potato soup, so I thought, I'll cook potato soup. It was one of those, you know, chilly 97-degree September days in Texas. And, uh, and so I decided, you know, what, what better than some warm potato soup? So, uh, so I looked up all these recipes for potato soup, scoured kind of the, the internet for it, and, uh, and, and found this one. It's a potato soup that they served to Congress. Who knew? Congress has a soup. So uh, I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Like, if it's good enough for Congress, it's good enough for us. So I decided to print out this recipe uh, and, and make this beautiful soup that they served to Congress, hope to celebrate this special time with my wife. And of course, you know, all of the regular, you know, ingredients were there that I was supposed to go to the store and get, potatoes and um, onions and cream and cheese and all this great stuff. But the soup also had kind of this one little secret ingredient. It was the spice clove. And it was like that one thing that was going to kick it up with just a little notch and make it better than all the others. It was the one thing that was going to make it right for Congress, right? So I went to the store, I got all my stuff, and I came home, laid it all out here, and, uh, and, I, and I was looking at the recipe, and I realized that the recipe called, it called for, for one whole clove. And I looked over, and I had bought ground cloves. Now, there, there are two data points that, that we need to talk about here that are really important uh, to this story, two things that, that I did not know. The first of which is that... Uh, Ground spices are a lot more powerful than whole spices, right? If you take one whole spice and you put it in a soup, it kind of, you know, soaks up the flavor, but it's a nice subtle flavor. You're almost always supposed to take the spice out afterwards after you've cooked it and throw it away. But the soup, you know, just kind of gets this great subtle, you know, hint of clove, right? So I was supposed to have one clove that just soaked in the soup and just permeated the soup with this beautiful little hint of clove that was going to kick me up, you know, just a little notch so we could, you know, be just like congressmen eating that soup. So I didn't really know that if you put just as much ground clove into the soup as a whole clove, well, the ground clove is going to go everywhere, right? A ground spice is just going to go everywhere, and it's going to be a lot stronger than the whole spice. First data point. Second thing I didn't know was the size of a clove. If you, if you cook uh, and you're familiar with cloves, you know, a clove, if you can see, is about this. It's like about a half of the size of a coffee bean. It's very small. I had in my mind something more of the size of a golf ball. So about 20 times the size of an actual clove is the amount of ground clove that I thought I should put in the soup. You know where this is going. We did not eat much of that soup. It was terrible. Okay, I'll tell you that. 
to illustrate the fact that, you know, when we do the same thing, even with one good thing, and we use it to the exclusion of all, thing, all other things, when we only focus on that one thing and we exclude all the others, we can end up with a really bad tasting soup. Right? So faith, knowledge, action, they are all supposed to be tied together. But when we take just one and we throw in these incredible heaping doses of it, then it's going to make the whole thing taste bad, and it's going to ruin not only that one thing, but the other two things as well. Just think about this with me for just a second. If your only focus is on faith to the exclusion of knowledge and action, what you're oftentimes going to get is what we can probably turn on the television, unfortunately, and see most days. And that is men standing up there claiming to be faith healers who have asked people to just believe, to just have faith. And by the way, that faith is not really in God, it's kind of in me. But if you just have enough of it and a nice check to go with it, then maybe something great will happen. And you're encouraged to just go ahead and check your mind at the door. We don't need knowledge. You don't really need to read your Bible. Definitely don't want to mess with theology. That's going to really mess you up. Just come and trust me and work up your faith and work it into this beautiful, you know, money-giving kind of activity, right? And so, of course, when we throw away knowledge and we raise faith up higher than it should be, we've also thrown away or manipulated action, and those people become abusers rather than lovers of people. Same thing can happen, though, with any of those three. What happens when we elevate knowledge to the exclusion of all else? This is probably more so our temptation than the others. When we elevate knowledge above anything else and we kind of become those who are the answer people, we got all our theological ducks in a row, we know all the answers, we know kind of how to answer all the right questions, we, we may even know how to ask the right questions. And we feel so good about ourselves, and we got our worship down perfectly, and we've got our interpretations down perfectly, and the way that we you know, tr you train our kids is perfectly, and the way that, that uh, families are supposed to act, we, all, we know all of those answers, right? So we don't really need any dependence upon the Lord. We don't need the activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We don't need him to do anything because we already know all the answers. And what's the activity of that kind of person? It's arrogance. See how we've messed all three of them up now? When we abuse one, we also abuse the others. And of course, if we elevate activity to exclusion of all the others, well, that's just good old-fashioned moralism, isn't it? You do the best you can. And that's how you get into God's good graces. You act. You fulfill all the requirements. You check all the boxes. You're just kind of a good guy or a good girl. And it doesn't really matter what you believe. It really doesn't matter who you trust. It doesn't matter what you know, just what you do. Well, friends, of course, the gospel, the good news, <laughs> is that neither our knowledge nor the amount of our faith nor our action gets us into God's good graces the reason why we are accepted by God is because of the action of another. It is because what, is Jesus has, because what is Jesus has done on our behalf. It's his action, and it's our understanding and belief and trust and deep dependence on that action that makes us right with God. We have to have all three. They can't be pulled apart. So there's the purpose of a gospel-centered church, a healthy church, is actually to train people in faith, knowledge, and action. They all need to be together. All right, let's look at the foundation then. 
a gospel-shaped foundation. That's the, the next or the third mark of a healthy church. Well, this we find kind of scattered throughout. Let me just read to you here in these verses. He goes on in, in verse 2 saying, uh, In hope, I'll read a little bit of verse 1, which accords with godliness, the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word. And then skipping down at the end of verse 4, he signs off by saying, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. I mean, there is a lot packed into these little verses here. Uh, and four really important words that are kind of the four legs on our table, the four cornerstones of the foundation, if you will. Hope, promise, grace, and peace. Boy, these are good words. Hope, biblically speaking, is not, I sure wish this would happen. Christian hope is not a wish and a prayer. Christian hope is actually eager anticipation of what we know will happen. It's anticipatory waiting, anticipatory patience. That's what hope is. And that hope is built on the promises that God has given us. And did you see what Paul says here? The promises that were given before the ages began. Can you get your head around that one? That God, before he created the cosmos, promised to redeem the cosmos. He promised that we would have this hope of this incredible eternal life in glory with him. He promised that, and just in case that doesn't sound secure enough for you, Paul tells us, God never lies. So the God who never lies before all things were created promised to, to redeem his creation. How amazing is that? And then Paul signs off, grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ and our Father. Grace and peace is his typical sign-off, but please don't mistake it for just a sincerely. You're a friend, Paul, right? That's not what he's saying. Grace and peace matter. These are two hugely important words in the Bible. This Greek understanding of grace, charis, it's not only just getting what you don't deserve, but also not getting what you deserve. It is unmerited favor. It is the opposite of working for a living. It is the opposite of doing everything that you need to do to check all the boxes and then being rewarded for it. Grace is actually being rewarded for the thing that you not only didn't do, but will never do and could never do on your own anyway. That's grace. And peace is that beautiful Hebrew concept of shalom. It's this idea of all things being right the way that it's supposed to be. Friends, we live in a time right now where we can say, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. I don't think it's a stretch to believe that. You can turn on the television, you can open up uh, any newspaper, you can click on any website, and I think you'll be reminded pretty quickly, we live in a world that is not the way that it's supposed to be. But what God says is that there is hope because of his promise that it will someday be the way that it's supposed to be. Shalom. Peace, all things being made right. And let me just say this in passing. That, that idea of a future peace, is we, we can actually make it real now. It's the beautiful thing about biblical peace is that Jesus in his death and resurrection has actually initiated that future time now. So the future reality that we will live in someday, we actually can live in in part today. And so peace can actually mark God's people and it's really helpful to understand what peace is because we think sometimes peace is the absence of conflict. I just need some peace. 
peace and quiet, right? That means I'm all alone and nobody's bothering me. Or can we just have some peace in the Middle East? Can people just stop fighting? Can't we all just get along? And that is an aspect of peace that that's really not the heart of peace. Peace is not the absence of conflict. It is the presence of redemption in the midst of conflict, in the midst of disillusionment and disappointment and disagreement and discouragement. God's peace is actually making things right even in the midst of things being wrong. And that is the foundation that a healthy church stands on. And if the foundation crumbles, friends, I got news for you, the whole thing crumbles. We've seen that in the horrific news that just keeps coming out about this condo in Miami. Every time you see news, it's worse. And it's a terrible, tragic illustration of what is also true in the church is that when the foundation crumbles, when it breaks apart, the things that are supposed to be holding it up break, the whole thing comes crashing down. So that's our third mark of a gospel-centered, healthy church. It's got to be a church with a foundation that is built on those kind of things, hope and promise and grace and peace. All right, let me finish up with this fourth one. It's the fourth mark, which is a gospel-centered identity. It's actually something really interesting, I think, that's happening here. We, we, we haven't even gotten right to the person he's addressing. <laughs> Paul has given us all this amazing stuff, this incredible theology, this, this rich, just beautiful, thickly packed few verses before he's even told us who he's writing to. And he says this in verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. How beautiful would it be to hear those words from your, your mentor, your pastor, from the Apostle Paul, my true child, my son, my daughter. Is there anything more tender than the words of a father or even a father figure or a mother to a child? Is there anything that a loving parent wouldn't do for their child? I'm going to just go ahead and assume that most of you have seen the movie Taken, you know, with Liam Neeson in it. Is that like I think it was the first time where somebody in Hollywood was like, hey, Liam Neeson, you know, he's old, um, but he does have a cool accent, so maybe we can make him into an action hero. And uh, it worked, totally worked. And uh, Taken, kind of the first in his string of uh, action hero movies, which all pretty much have the same plot. And if you haven't seen this, I'm going to totally ruin it for you. But it's okay, because you already know what the whole thing is about, because the, the plot is, is just completely stock. You have seen this movie a hundred times. And, and to tell you the truth, like the plot's stock, the characters are stock, the dialogue is stock, it's all pretty much stock movie. But the end, the payoff, is so worth it. So Liam Neeson is this old, retired, uh, you know, covert operative uh, assassin or something like that. He's got a very special set of skills, right? And so that was more Sean Connery than Liam Neeson, but it's all right. Uh, anyway, he's this kind of, you know, bad dude whose daughter, college-age daughter, is on a trip to Europe, and she gets abducted. And she gets abducted on this trip, and she is along this kind of chain of bad guys sold or being sold into the harem of this rich Middle Eastern man. It's a father's worst nightmare, right? Uh, but of course, Liam Neeson being who he is, spends most of the movie uh, hunting down all the bad guys and leaving this string of dead bad guys in his wake until we finally reach the end of the movie that makes it all worth it. 
And there's his daughter about to be sold into the hands of someone else, about to become a bondservant, a slave to a very evil man. And as he comes in and he rescues her and he destroys everybody in his wake and he's standing there before his daughter, uh, and I may not be able to get through this because uh, if you're the father of a daughter, uh, this, is, <laughs> this is the best payoff, right? Because she just looks at him and she says, Daddy, you came for me. And it's so beautiful. So see, the response of this daughter who knows the love of her father. And you know, guys, the, the story that the entirety of the Bible tells us is actually of children who are most best described as enemies of God, who instead of actually being taken by a bad guy, they are actually the bad guy themselves and run away from their father and want to have nothing to do with him and sell themselves into slavery to sin and death. And that father comes and at the cost of his very self rescues them. And he says, my son, my daughter, I came for you. You know, this, this sermon's kind of upside down because if you want to figure out how to, to create a healthy church, this is the place to start. This last one is the most important one of all. Because in order to actually have an attitude of service, in order to have a purpose of promoting faith and knowledge and action among God's people, in order to have actually a real and true foundation, we have to first hear those words. My true child, my son, my daughter, I came for you. Jesus tells his disciples in the Gospel of Luke, after some amazing things have happened, his disciples have been out uh, evangelizing, and they come back and they say, Jesus, we're killing it. Like, we're casting out demons, and, and we're healing the sick, and it's amazing. The demons even listen to our voice. And you know what Jesus says? He says, don't celebrate. Don't rejoice that the demons listen to your voice. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of heaven. Friends, your name." If you belong to Christ, my true child, that's your name. And it is written in his blood forever. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, rescuer of the needy. Lord, we come As those who, who have run away, who have done so continuously, and get to hear still these words, my true child. God, I pray for anyone who's here who has never heard that from an earthly father or mother, from a spouse, and certainly from you. I pray, Lord, that they would hear it today. Lord, in those who hear it all the time, <laughs> Let us hear it anew and afresh so that this church may be centered on one thing and one thing only, 
And that is the beauty of your gospel, that you make enemies children. Will you do that now by the power of your spirit? Amen.